Welcome back to Avatar the Podcast. We are your hosts, Acorn Bandit and Booster Craig. Say hello, Booster. No, you can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. <laughs> You're not my dog. You can't dictate my life. Today, we're going to be talking about book two, chapter 14, The City of Walls and Secrets, or as we like to call it, The Unbearable Truth of Ba Sing Se. What a pun. Yes. It feels good to get one just like right out the gate. Just let everyone (laughs) enjoy it and just chew on it for a little bit. This is where Greg makes secret plans to throw a pun into every, or as we like to call it. Oh man, imagine. I don't know. That's so much pressure. That's too many. That's a lot of puns. That's a lot of puns. That's a lot of pun performance. That's like, that's too much. That's like having too much cake. It's just sometimes you just got to (laughs) have like a little break from it. That's all. Or you could do what I did yesterday and make a whole cake and eat about half of it in a day because that's where I am in 2020. I feel like I would just die. I would curl up under a couch and just be like, (laughs) leave me alone. I'm pacing myself. I'm taking like a bite every time I go to the kitchen. It's just, it's so good. Oh, we, um, we've been baking so many cookies here. So I've been eating a lot of those and I'm almost at that point where I want to go underneath the couch and just be like, I'm done. I'm done for a few days. Just no one touch me. Completely unrelated. I also just purchased a treadmill. Totally unrelated though. You know, the baked goods and all that. Not related to my treadmill purchase whatsoever. That's going to be great to sit in a corner and get dusty a lot. That's what, that's <laughs> what mine is currently doing. The cat yeah. uses it more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. In this episode, we finally make it to Ba Sing Se. Finally. In the words of Michael DiMartino, this is a city that holds a lot of meaning for the characters. Not only have we been building up to this moment for about one and a half seasons at this point, for a lot of characters, they have some history here. Mm-hmm. For Iroh, Ba Sing Se represents a place of devastating loss because it was here that he lost the 100-day military siege, as well as his son. The city represents hope for Aang because it's where he hopes to find Appa. For Sokka, it's where he will find support from the Earth King for his Fire Nation invasion plan. And for Azula in the Fire Lord, it represents the last Earth Kingdom stronghold because if Ba Sing Se fell, the Fire Nation would win the war. So there's a lot going on here. Yeah. I also want to note that Ba Sing Se was a real challenge for the team to design due to its sheer size and complexity. We really see that when we, uh, and we're about to get to this, but when the characters are coming into the city, this is a huge city. Yeah, it is. Jeez. It's the biggest one we've seen yet, I think. It is. Yeah. We've kind of been building up to this point, right? Our, yeah, yeah. Our origins in the Southern Water Tribe up to the Northern Water Tribe mm-hmm. and now to Ba Sing Se. Well from northern water or southern water tribe rather to omashu to that is true don't forget omashu never forget omashu it's such a great place what was you mean uh new ozai right yeah and then new ozai is is not quite as great it's like it's like new coke it's not quite as good as as (laughs) old-fashioned it's the knockoff brand of omashu (laughs) it's terrible Around this time in the production, a new background designer joined the team, actually. Uh, And I want to make a note of this because in the art book specifically, there are some absolutely beautiful illustrations. The background designer's name is Javon Blue. And this person apparently cranked out some super high quality drawings in what Brian described as alarming quantities. This designer certainly lived up to his nickname, which was The Machine. Nice. 
Our episode opens just inside the outer wall on the Ba Sing Se monorail, which is powered by two earthbenders who push it from behind. Inside the cabin, Katara excitedly points out the inner wall ahead of them through the window. I can't believe we finally made it to Ba Sing Se in one piece, she says, and Sokka tells her not to jinx it. They could still be attacked by some giant exploding Fire Nation spoon, or find out the city's been submerged in an ocean of killer shrimp. Toph asks Sokka if he's been hitting the cactus juice again. <laughs> And he defends himself by saying that weird stuff happens to them. At that moment, a large, unkempt Earth Kingdom man shuffles down the aisle and plops between them with an ear of corn sticking out of his mouth. Uh, this is an Invader Zim reference right here. Yes, it is. Yeah. And so the the wiki says it's a it's a Gur reference. And I don't remember that specific. I used to love Invader Zim, although I haven't watched it in a very long time. Uh, but when I was watching the director's commentary for this, it was either Brian or Mike. Everyone knows that I can't tell their voices apart. But one of them was like, oh, yeah, this is an Invader Zim reference. And if you know, you know. And I thought so when it because like the guy's facial expression is very Zim-esque. And yeah. like that weird space music that played only kind of reinforced that. There was, I remember, a character um, who was a homeless man in Invader Zim who always had like corn husks and stuff around him. So I thought it was a reference to that. I wonder if that's it. That could be. Yeah, because Gurr is definitely not really too much like that man. Gurr is a cute, short little robot. He's more yeah, like Momo, yeah. if anything else. Yeah, but it's really cool because I read that Chris Graham, who drew yes. the storyboard, did this in homage to Invader Zim because he worked on that show with Brian. Yeah, which is like probably why I like both these shows so much is probably I probably <laughs> just really like Brian, to be honest, and his, Makes his sense, take on right? things. Yeah, I do want to point out where they are in the city right now, because as we learn in this episode, there's a lot of walls in Bossing Say, but I found it really fascinating this part right here in between the outer wall and the inner wall, because apparently one of the reasons Bossing Se has stood strong during the Hundred Year War is that the city can rely on itself. Right here between the outer and inner wall is a huge expanse of farmland that fed the large city. Similar to Omashu, the walls were exclusively maintained and controlled by earthbending, which means basically they can just hold themselves up and they are good. Mm. They don't have to go out for anything. That's smart. If the world is like going down and burning in flames around you, just build a wall and make sure that your city is self-sufficient. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's worth noting that Ba Sing Se is perhaps one of the oldest settlements in this world because, and I don't know if we saw this specifically, but I read that there was a 5,000 year old map in Wan Shitong's library, which suggests it's about this old. And crazy enough, like I cannot tell you how far down the rabbit hole I went with Bossing Say. <laughs> Apparently, the city started as a subterranean city. So it was an underground city Ooh. that moved above ground. And then all the walls and stuff came in. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later on another episode. Interesting. Mole people. Mole people. <laughs> in the monorail, Katara and Aang sit across the aisle from Sokka and Hoff. And Katara notices Aang's sad demeanor. She tells him not to worry. They'll find Appa. It's such a big city, Aang tells her worriedly. And Sokka cuts in to say, Appa's a giant bison. Where could someone possibly hide him? Sokka undoubtedly has his small village home or even the larger Northern Water Tribe in mind, but he is quickly corrected when the monorail passes through the next wall and reveals the sprawling lower ring. Yeah. Buildings stretch miles into the distance and it quickly becomes clear that finding Appa will be no easy task. Yeah, he did not understand the size of the city until he actually saw it. 
I don't think we did either. No, like we yeah. kept hearing the great city of Bossing say, and it took Iroh like over a hundred days to lay siege and he still didn't win. But seeing it in person or seeing it through the character's eyes mm. is it really puts things in perspective. Yeah, it really does. And I know the city of Bossing say is, is mostly based on you know, some cities in China and has that kind of influence, but mm-hmm. it keeps on reminding me of New York City, because if you've never been to New York City and the first time you go, you know, it's big, but you don't really have an idea of just how large and like the skyscrapers are or how many people are in this city. So you don't really have that kind of connection. And like for me, I felt very much like soccer when I first went there. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I grew up around or near Boston. So I was like, yeah, I know a city. Don't worry about it. And I got there and I was like, holy crap. These are some tall buildings. These are a lot of streets. Yeah. And also this whole like train system that they have reminds me of like the New York City subway as well, Mm -hmm. which is really kind of interesting. So it's like almost like a little bit of New York infused in Chinese culture, which is a very interesting and I think kind of bold take to kind of do because Mm -hmm. they've been so respectful of different cultures. Whenever you try to take any sort of differing approach to it. Sometimes people can view it in a different light. So I thought it was like, okay, cool. Yeah. The monorail system really reminded me of the train system in Japan because I went there as a teenager and it was just really cool to see how how far across the country you could get just by riding the train. Yeah. Similar to here where the train will take you from the outer wall to the inner wall to the lower ring to the middle ring to the upper ring. Like it takes you across the whole city. Fair. Yeah. Or or Disney World. Or Disney World. That is true. That is true. The monorail inspiration could have come from Disney. Could have. In the director's commentary, they did say that it was it. I don't know if they meant for it to be New York, but they also said like it reminded them of New York City as well. And I was like, I'm glad Mm -hmm. I'm not alone in that. So it might have been like a subconscious thing. I couldn't tell you. But yeah, the monorail pulls into the elevated station and the group steps off. Top size back in the city. She deadpans. Great. When Sokka is excited, she assures him he'll get sick of the walls and the rules in a few days. A few feet away, Aang tells Katara that he knows Appa's here. He can feel it. Their guide, Judy, appears and welcomes them to Ba Sing Se. Sokka tries to tell her they have information for the Earth King and need to see him immediately, but she acts like she didn't hear him and begins their tour of the city. Just the, you're in Ba Sing Se now, everyone is safe here. Yeah. It's... (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God. And he's like, wait, is she not hearing me? Is she like deaf or something? Is she selective hearing? What's going on here? Yeah. She's just blatantly he tries ignoring so many him. times. <laughs> and she's like her expression never changes. Actually, fun fact, her expression only changes twice in this episode. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So it's always that uh, frozen smile. Always the frozen smile, except for, well, I'll point out both times. But the first time I think might have been an animation mistake. And the second time was definitely more impactful. Oh, wow. But um, Judy was actually based off of someone that worked on Avatar. Yes, I did read that. Yes. Yes. So it's the um, line producer. Her name is uh, Mike and Wong, who they describe Brian and Mike in the, the Blu-ray DVD commentary as always having this like smile on her face. Even when they thought things were terrible, they would be like, no, we have like no time to do any of this. And Mike and would be like, yes, it's okay. And like this permanent frozen smile, <laughs> like they'd be freaking out. And she's just like cool as a cucumber. <laughs> Everything is OK in our animation <laughs> studio. Yeah, exactly. 
Tying back to China a little bit more too, the concept of handling visitors and denying any negative events in the general populace are pretty similar to the workings of real world China, which is obviously what Ba Sing-se was based upon. In another real world parallel, North Korea requires that all visitors visiting Pyongyang, I think that's how you say that, mm-hmm. be tended to by state guides at all times. So like in a lot of different like news stories, anyone who goes over there from another country to report on something, they have their own Judy. They don't leave their sides. They kind of manage the visit and control what the person sees and what they hear. And so I love that Toff kind of references this by saying that it's called being handled. Get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> also, that would drive me up a wall. If there's just yeah, someone same. always there, you turn around a corner, they're just waiting for you with that frozen dead smile. Yeah, for sure. Oof. So for the next little while, they go on a tour through the different rings of the city. And Judy is kind of narrating as they go. So I wanted to break down each ring and some of the qualities that Judy shares about them. Mm-hmm. In the lower ring... It is the home to the poor classes of Ba Sing Se society, and the majority of its population, including newcomers to the city, and so a lot of the refugees, they live here. Most of the Lower Ring's residents work with their hands as artisans, laborers, and craftsmen, while the rest are merchants and food vendors. Buildings in the Lower Ring are generally small because the Lower Ring houses the majority of the populace, and many people need to be crammed into the space available. The lower ring status and poverty have remained unchanged for centuries. The roofs of most buildings in the ring are also brown tiled, indicating the poor status of the owners. It is also impossible to travel from the lower ring into the upper ring without a valid passport. The middle ring of Ba Sing Se contains the city's middle class population. Inside this ring are a vast assortment of shops and restaurants, as well as Ba Sing Se University. There's also the financial district and town hall, which Judy notes is one of the oldest buildings in the middle ring. The buildings in this ring are larger than those in the lower ring, and the roofs are also tiled green. It is generally wealthier, has a more peaceful atmosphere, and so there's like a lot of flowers and trees. And you can notice that going from the lower ring to the middle ring, it just opens up a lot. There's a lot more space. Yeah. And then going into the upper ring, it's like everyone has their own. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everyone has that has like their own palatial estate. Yeah, they um they mentioned this on the the commentary as well, and, and I didn't mm-hmm. notice the different colored roofs until uh, after they brought it up, and I was like, oh yeah, because they don't make a big deal out of pointing it out. It's just there for you to catch. Yeah, um, which I thought was really cool. And yeah, the space too, where it's like the poor people of Ba Sing Se just have to live on top of each other. They just have to deal with it. So you could have like an artisan living on top of like a thief or like a murderer or Mm -hmm. something like that. It's like all just like a mishmash of different cultures and people, which I think is actually probably the more interesting place to live, albeit the more dangerous. Yeah, true. (laughs) Judy mentions how you kind of have to watch your step in this in the lower ring and it yep. pan, the camera pans over to an alleyway where there's two guys like one guy sharpening his sword and looking at yeah, it. Just yeah just holding weapons in the middle of the city so yeah. so headcanon time that's the first time not headcanon well this is the first time that she drops her smile that we see when she mentions oh, you want to watch mm-hmm. your step headcanon is if she only breaks this persona when she's in immediate danger or threat I wonder if she knows that man from something like he attacked her or something at some point. Oh, that would be interesting. Or she came from the lower ring and yeah. was granted favor 
when she joined the the Daily organization as a Judy tour guide. Yeah, I'm a, I'm about that too. Yeah, but like, so that was the first time we see it. For me, it was kind of like a. I wish they didn't have her drop that smile at that point because mm-hmm. I think it would have been more impactful when she actually does. But she did. Whatever. No big deal. One final thing about the middle ring is the citizens of the middle ring are free to enter the agrarian zone, which is that portion of farmland inside the outer wall, the lower ring and also the upper ring without needing permission. Now, the upper ring is the most affluent of all of these rings because the upper ring contains the city's upper class population, as well as the military and government officials. And this is also where the royal palace is. As they're passing the palace, Katara asks about it. And so Judy kind of gives them some information and they spot these shady looking Daili agents outside. And Judy is like, oh, yeah, the Daili agents are cultural authorities of Ba Sing Se. Okay. Guardians of the city's tradition. Okay, yeah, sure. So basically, they're the guardians of the culture, like by using force. <laughs> so yeah. haters see. I hate them so much. So much. It's like the perfect example of a good thing gone wrong. Yeah. Like having order is good, having protection is good. But when that protection is at the expense of everything else, mm-hmm. then it's a problem. Yeah, I don't even think that they offer good order. They just offer order in general. And that is like, mm-hmm. it's it's like order through shady practices. Like, I guarantee you no one or not many people in the lower ring know much about Daily, except for oh, like, yeah. like, it's probably like about as much as like a random thug knows about Batman in Gotham City. Like, it, like <laughs> yeah. mostly like myth and like maybe some like, someone's dad who worked for nintendo's best friend or something like that you know that old like right story from a story from a story from someone else saw one once but it was blurry or is that night or he was drunk or something like that like that's like my headcanon right now for for daily and city knowledge of that practice yeah i could totally see that they're really obviously with them being centered in the upper ring i don't think they get out of the upper ring very often unless they're having to oh wait do you mean the daily agents or the people that live there oh daily agents daily definitely go into the lower ring absolutely oh no you're right you do see them do that never mind (laughs) they are definitely everywhere But I don't think the citizens of the upper ring go into the lower ring. No, at I don't all, either. I, th- I think I think yeah. they go to the middle middle ring and they consider that slumming it. Yeah, is, is what exactly, happens. Exactly, which is like so real world. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no one goes to the slums if they're wealthy. Right. Yeah. Now the buildings in the upper ring are generally huge walled compounds, kind of like smaller versions of the Earth Kingdom Royal Palace. The roofs are done in yellow tiles to symbolize the richness of the buildings and its owners. And also the upper ring citizens are free to go wherever they please within Ba Sing Se. Although, as we just said, probably not the lower ring. I can't Probably imagine. avoid that. I mean, maybe to drink some of Uncle's tea, but... That's true. Hasn't happened yet, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Calling back to Sokka trying to tell Judy about their information regarding the war. Mm-hmm. I love how when they're in the middle ring and Judy's doing her little tour guide thing, she mentions the university. And I love how Sokka's like, oh, yeah, the university where we met a professor in this <laughs> underground library who told us this really important thing about the war. Yeah. And then Judy is like, isn't history fascinating? Yeah. Just ignoring it again and trying Completely. to move on. Yeah. 
I also found it interesting when Aang was saying that this was one of the reasons why he never came here by seeing the separation between the city's people and the very obvious classism between the different rings. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's cool to hear because it, it was established that Ba Sing Se is a super old city. So just thinking that back 100 years ago, Aang knew that the city was like this and the monks were like, yeah, let's let's not go there. Their way of life isn't supported by the things that we believe. Yeah, yeah. They the monks were very much about not having worldly possessions and stuff like that and like being Mm -hmm. free to move about. Right. Also, everyone being equal. Yeah. And everyone being equal. The only possession that they have, not even a possession, but the only tie that they have is really to their sky bisons. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And now seeing a whole city that is the exact opposite mentality where those who have little, I would even argue, try to cling on to it more so than those who have many. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting to see his reaction to all this. And he does not like it one bit. No. Now, while this tour is happening, Zuko and Iroh are also in the city. They make their way down a street somewhere in the lower ring with Iroh carrying a beautiful vase of orange flowers. When Zuko shoots him a look, Iroh says, I just want our place to look nice in case someone brings home a lady friend. Ooh. He nudges Zuko with his elbow. This city is a prison, Zuko says. I don't want to make a life here. Iroh replies, life happens wherever you are, whether you make it or not. Now, come on. I found us new jobs and we start this afternoon. All right, Ferris Bueller. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Behind them, Jet watches as they continue down the street. He is fixated, convinced that they are firebenders after believing he saw Iroh warm his cup of tea in the refugee processing center. Smellerby and Longshot are with him, and Smellerby attempts to talk him down by reminding him that they were meant to start over in Ba Sing Se. We are, Jet tells her. When I get the evidence I need, I'll report them to police and let them handle it, okay? But Smellerby and Longshot exchange a look that says they don't fully believe him. There's just something wrong with Jet. There's just like uh-huh. like a wire that didn't get fully connected or got crossed to the wrong wire. Like he just can't help himself. Oh, he can't. It's it's like I would argue, if not at the level of Zuko and Ang, like that fixation more so because or maybe it is about equal because when he was apart from like any fire nation jet was like fine and then the second he was convinced that he may have seen some sort of fire bending he immediately fixated right back on it and is ignoring his friends he's ignoring literally everything he doesn't have any real proof either although he's right he doesn't have any proof yeah you're right his fixation is a lot like zuko's in that way because zuko it's it's like a light switch for him too. Yeah. He's either super focused on the avatar and restoring his honor and traversing the the world in order to find him. Or he's like, okay, fine. I'll exist here in this city. But as soon as he gets a reminder, it's like the switch flips back on again. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting to see how similar Jet and Zuko are. And I believe we talked about that in the previous episode where they team up for the first time. And it's like, oh yeah, like the cool guy energy is like so strong right now. They make such a good team, and I think that's a big part why. Well, they they both have, like, they both use dual swords. Granted, mm-hmm. they're different kind of blades, but they still do that, right? Like, they both have that, like, edgy kind of bad boy thing going on about them. But I think what they're trying to use Jet for, specifically in this episode, is what would happen if Zuko 
continues to go down the path that he's been down before. Yeah. Jet is like Zuko without uncle. Yes. Yeah. Although we do see the influence of Smellerby and Longshot, his friends here, but I, I think they are more of a traditional kind of friend who tries to be there for their friend and give good advice. Whereas uncle is like a ride or die Zuko Stan. Like he will yeah. not abandon Zuko. He will not leave Zuko. He will always have Zuko's best interest and pretty much seek to help Zuko in whatever he's doing. It's like, it's like the next level of support. I also think that there's uh, an amount of respect that Zuko has for his uncle, whether he'll admit it or not. And Jet doesn't respect anyone. Yeah, he sees his friends more as followers, I yep. would say. I and would that, agree. that kind of plays into their relationship, too. Yeah. Yeah. So anything they say, he's not taking to heart. He's not taking into consideration. It's just more like a nagging in the back of his head kind of thing versus mm-hmm. Iroh is like literally the angel or the conscience on um, Zuko's shoulder. Yeah. Jet follows Uncle and Zuko to their new job at the Pao family tea house and listens through an open window as Pao onboards his new employees. Inside, when Pao leaves to find Uncle more string for his too small apron, Iroh tastes a cup of tea and is disgusted by it. This tea is nothing more than hot leaf juice, he exclaims. <laughs> Uncle, that's what all tea is, Zuko says. Outraged, Ira replies, how could a member of my own family say something this. so horrible? He's <laughs> <laughs> like personally too. offended. <laughs> we'll have to make some major changes around here. He dumps the rest of the pot of tea outside the window where Jet is lurking. So the Pao family tea house, I read that Pao means to boil or bubble in Chinese, which oh, ties cool. into, yeah, his ownership of a tea shop. Yeah. Also, I am not one to look for or try to find goofs, but I couldn't help but notice in this scene, Pao leaves to find extra string for Uncle's apron. But Mm -hmm. before he even comes back, after Iroh tries the tea, he turns around to go dump the rest of the tea outside the window and his apron is tied with more string. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. And I'm going to forgive this one because of the amount of string that was used made me chuckle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I tried to write it off. It was it was a goof that I I actually noticed and I don't tend to notice most of them. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I try to like turn my brain off. I notice them, but I try not to let it like like if if you ever notice or watch like a, a comedy show specifically where characters are drinking, that water level or that beverage level will change per cut all the Mm -hmm. time usually dramas are a little more um careful about those but comedies don't really care yeah 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 they're less focused on continuity i think with those lighthearted shows yeah or movies for sure and cigarettes are a big one too yeah team avatar and judy arrive at their new apartment in the upper ring a messenger delivers a note to judy who then tells team avatar that she has good news Your request for an audience with the Earth King is being processed and should be put through in about a month. Well, six to eight weeks, actually. (laughs) Much more quicker than usual. Double a month. Well, maybe double. (laughs) Well, maybe two. (laughs) Sokka is dismayed by this news and asks if they can see the Earth King any faster. But Judy tells him the Earth King will see them as soon as time permits. He's very busy running the finest city in the world, after all. If we're going to be here for a month, we should spend our time looking for Appa, Aang says, and Judy offers to escort them anywhere they'd like to go. When they protest, she insists, using the excuse that she would be a bad host if she left them alone. 
They travel to a few places around the city inquiring about Appa, first a pet store and next the university. And in each location, Judy discreetly discourages the citizens from saying anything from where she stands behind Team Avatar. Okay, two things. Uh, First off, I'm terrible because I missed this casting. The voice actor for Judy is played by Lauren Tom, who is Amy from Futurama. Oh, Uh, Samurai Jack's mother from Samurai Jack and Gizmo in Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go, as well as Dana from Batman Beyond. And Dana was uh, Terry McGinnis, who is Batman and Batman Beyond, uh, his girlfriend. So she was like a big main character in that. Yeah. So she's pretty big. Uh, The pet shop owner, actually in the director's commentary, Brian and Mike actually misremembered who played this character. They thought it was one of their friends. It's not. (laughs) It's actually the pet shop owner is actually played by Will Wheaton from Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Stand By Me, and also played Aqualad in Teen Titans Go, Big Bang Theory. Like everyone knows who Will Wheaton is, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So. Um, But yeah, that is actually Will Wheaton. If you watch it again and keep that in mind, it doesn't sound like him for a little bit. And then the last line he delivers, I'm like, that's Will Wheaton because he does this thing. And I do it, too, where like sometimes when he says like a word, like you can like hear the air in his in his mouth. Like, yeah, that it does that. And I'm like, ah, I found you. What an interesting quality. Yeah. Yeah. When they go to the university, actually, and the student they speak with tells them to go see Professor Say. I just want to point out that is the teacher that they meet in the desert. So the teacher who teaches the class on desert cultures, they actually met him already. And Mm -hmm. I don't think he's coming back to work anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I just want to point out that that student was voiced by Scott Menville again. Why does that sound so familiar? Because he was also the scout from The Great Divide. He was also, he's Robin from Teen Titans and Teen Titans Go. That, oh God, again. This is like the third or fourth time we've we've seen him. And it's the third or fourth time where I'm like, oh, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he was the scout from uh, Great Divide. He was one of the Earth Kingdom scouts in uh, Bato of the Water Tribe. He also played mm-hmm. the two kids from the Blind Bandit episode. The that, One of them was the fan of the great, yeah. of the hippo. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, big bad hippo. So He's just peppered throughout this whole series now at this point. He's like that guy where they're like, hey, we need a voice. You want to do this? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) That's what it feels like. Yes. When they get back to their apartment, Judy advises they all get some rest before leaving in the carriage they arrived in. Across the street, they see a man peeking through the window of his front door. When they go over and knock on the door, the neighbor peeks out, obviously wanting to tell them something, but also afraid of getting in trouble. He briefly tells them not to mention the war in Ba Sing Se and to avoid the Dai Li at all cost, then closes the door in their faces. This character is supposed to have more appearances later on, but then the director's commentary, Mike and Brian were like, yeah, he just seemed like extra. So we just cut him. But he was supposed to have like a much larger role eventually. And they were just like, yeah, whatever. And that was actually one of the inside jokes uh, between the creative team where it's just like, oh, we can just throw this guy in. And then it just never happens. That's so interesting. Yeah. I also read that he was supposed to be living with another character named Ping for oh. obvious comical reasons, yeah. Ping and Pong. Yep. But they decided it wasn't funny enough for the episode. So it sounds <laughs> like they cut a lot about him. Yeah. Poor guy. You know what he reminds me of, actually? He kind of looks like a character we're going to see later on. And so for the people, this is not too much of a spoiler for okay. people who've seen this show in the Painted Lady episode. He kind of reminds me of the comical lake character, the guy who sells fish. Hmm. So just want to point it out because I don't know if they 
ended up recycling a lot of his character design or if it's just super similar, but I definitely saw the similarity. They definitely reuse character designs, I noticed, mm-hmm. be- between this episode and, and some of the previous ones. Because a lot of the, I'll call them like the NPC Earth Kingdom men, look very similar. Mm, true. Yeah. Across the city, Iroh and Zuko are home after their first day of work, and Iroh asks Zuko if he'd like some tea. We've been working in a tea shop all day. I'm sick of tea. Iroh is offended and replies, sick of tea? That's like being sick of breathing. I love it. He's just like, (laughs) what? (laughs) So good. Jet observes their exchange from a rooftop across the street and eagerly watches to see what Iroh does when the old man can't find spark rocks to light a fire for his teapot. Jet opens his hand to reveal that he was the one who stole them and anticipates Iroh using firebending to light the kindling instead. But to his disappointment, Iroh borrows another set of spark rocks from a neighbor. Oh, devious, devious Jet. Also, just when you get to the point where you like completely abandon your daily life and end up surveilling another person because you're that suspicious of them, you're stalking them basically. Yeah. That's when you have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. He's just like, yes, old man, I've got you now with his like the, the sparking rocks in his hand. And like Iroh probably could have just grabbed two normal rocks and just uh, firebended and like you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from that distance. Like, yeah. Yeah, true. But I also have to give it to Iroh that he is so dedicated to playing the role of a refugee that he goes out of his way to do things that would be so easy to accomplish with a little bit of firebending. Well, I think he's also smart enough to realize that like they cannot firebend in here, period, like you don't know who's watching at any given point. And mm-hmm. I think that's just like part of his military and disciplined background where he's like, yeah, I, I could like Zuko is definitely not that disciplined, but Iroh is just like, whatever, like it's fine. Or, or also, you know what, now that I'm talking, I've talked myself out of that idea and talked myself into <laughs> the fact that maybe Iroh just thinks that fire made from rocks versus firebending just makes tea better. Kind of like, you know how some people like hmm. who smoke cigars say you should only smoke a cigar with a wooden match. I don't know if people actually say that, but that's what the movie Hellboy has taught me uh, versus like lighting <laughs> it with with a lighter because like the oh, butane, like the butane gets into the taste of the cigar, supposedly. Oh, wow. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I wonder if Ira's a purist like that, where he's like, if you're making tea, if you can help it, you should not firebend the fire. You should just make it the way it's intended. I totally support that. Yeah. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) The next morning, Katara discovers an invitation for a party at the palace that evening in honor of the Earth King's pet bear. You mean platypus bear? Aang asks when she comes inside. Certainly you mean his pet skunk bear, Sokka says. Or his armadillo bear. This comes from Toph. Gopher bear? Aang adds. (laughs) No, Katara says. It just says bear. This place is weird, says Toph. So this is something that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So I know that there are only four non-chimera, non-hybrid animals. Mm -hmm. The first one we ever see is a non-hybrid animal. The penguin seal? The penguin. They they say penguin sledding. I know. But they just call it a penguin, not a penguin seal. It's also the first or second episode. You can't like... That's fair. ...fault them for that because it visually looks like a hybrid animal. Visually, yes, but they don't call it that. So I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know. They make like, such a big deal out of just the bear. But like, there's more. And granted, there's a lot of animals in the world. And granted, mm-hmm. like four out of a lot, like an entire world is not a lot. 
But yeah, for me, it's like that. And this was common around um, this time and prior where they're trying to like rewrite their own continuity a little bit. And that always like is jarring for me. So like the, like the main one you, I think of is like Boy Meets World where Topanga's parents are played by three different actors and she goes through oh, three yeah. different backgrounds. And so this had like tinges of that for me. Uh, it doesn't ruin the series but for me by any stretch of the imagination, but like kind of like with Sokka's boomerang, they're trying to like infuse like some sort of foreshadowing at this point to make like a future point seem that much more impactful. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I guess I'm a lot less picky about it because in a world where nearly every animal is a hybrid animal with a hybrid name, meaning yeah. there's two words for its name, yeah. I can see how this would be really abnormal. Like also... For a king, too, it's like not only does he have a pet animal, but it's like this completely outlandish, never been heard of before pet, which is not a hybrid animal. Like, But like cats are in this world. Do we ever hear what Miyuki, Miyuki is called? Do they no. say cat? I don't. They never say that cat. And spoilers for next episode. There's a cat in there as well during Aang's adventure. And it's just a cat. They never say it's a cat, but it there's no hybridness about it. It's just a cat. My headcanon is there are certain very specific animals like a cat. That mm -hmm. Well, no, I actually take that back immediately because in the pet shop, we see this like cat eagle hybrid thing. And and there's a dog. They saw a dog last episode or a couple episodes back in, in the desert. Yeah, this is true. Or, I'm sorry, the library, the library. So it's kind of weird. So like, it's not the first time, but like, I think there's enough where it's like, oh yeah, ha ha. Like, you know, we've seen like, they made such a big deal out of it before. Yeah. But I don't know. It's just kind of like one of those things where I wish, and there's no way this could ever have happened, but like they had a, a little bit extra foresight into like all of their animals being hybrids. Mm -hmm. Like you could have literally like gone the extra mile for right. this one-offs. Yeah. Right. You could have yeah. literally just had cat dog and that would have been also a Nickelodeon reference. <laughs> True. Or like a skunk cat. Yeah. How cute would Miyuki be if she had like a skunk stripe on her? That'd be, she'd be really cute. She'd be really stinky though, but she'd be really, yeah, really she cute. Would. Yeah. Well, it, it works with an herbalist, right? Because they probably have a stinky Fair. Yep. apothecary. That, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, so that yeah. one just kind of like rubbed me a little bit the wrong I can way. See that. But it's not like terrible. It's just me being picky. Yeah, yeah. Katara tells the others of her plan. They can sneak into the palace using the crowd at the party and figure out a way to talk to the Earth King from there. Toph shoots the plan down, saying the society crowd would spot them a mile away because they have no manners. I've got no manners? You're not exactly Lady Fancy Fingers yourself, Katara says. <laughs> Toph explains that she has learned proper society behavior and chose to leave it all behind. How hard can manners be to learn, asks Aang. And he and Sokka have... <laughs> They impersonate this like this. high class exchange it's bowing so back good. and forth. It's so good. Aang is like, good evening, Mr. Sokka Water Tribe, Miss Katara Water Tribe, Lord Momo of the Momo Dynasty, <laughs> your Momoness. And then Sokka is just like, he stands up and he's like wearing the curtain as a robe. And he's like, oh, yes, Avatar Aang, how do you do? Go on. So funny. Yes. <laughs> and they're just bowing until they bonk each other. And that's also one of my favorite gifts to use yes, on Twitter me too. as well. Yeah. So yeah, funny. it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite is Momo. Momo. Oh, I love Momo in this so much. You don't even realize Momo's in the foreground throughout this entire episode or this yeah. entire scene rather, not episode. But yeah, he's in the foreground of this entire scene until he pops his head out of the blanket. 
Uh, and then Toph's like, yeah, you, Katara, you can probably pull this off. But those guys, no. And Sokka's like, but I feel so fancy. <laughs> he has a, a bag that matches his belt. Of course he's fancy. He's so funny. You're so defeated, but I feel so fancy. <laughs> yeah, Toph tells them that they could possibly pull off busboys, but Katara is yeah. probably the only one who could pull off the disguise. Yeah, yeah. Again, I love how Toph is like the most cultured one in the group because she is also arguably like the sloppiest one in the group. So yeah. I actually love that. She has this like distinction in her own mind where she knows what she's doing. She just chooses not to. So therefore, she knows mm -hmm. how to do it. It's just ridiculous logic. I love it. So I just want to point out really quickly that in the middle of all this, Toph is just picking her nose and she flicks it and it lands on the ceiling. And then at the end of the scene, her booger falls on Sokka's face. That's what that was. That's what that I didn't was. make the connection. Yeah. Oh <laughs> it's disgusting, but I love it. Yeah. Well, she's Lady Fancy Fingers, yeah. of course. <laughs> so good. <laughs> we cut to later that night when Toph and Katara emerge in their party finery. Aang and Sokka are playing a game of rock, paper, scissors, except elemental style. Mm -hmm. And Aang blushes when he sees how pretty Katara looks. We'll get in the party and then find a way to let you in through the side gate, Katara tells them, and they leave. Um, so after they leave, to kind of continue the whole Momo of the Momo dynasty thing, <laughs> yeah. Momo like marches across the ground carrying this cape behind him. So proud. Like his, he's like so walking good. upright. So like, regal. Good posture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And also their costumes here. So the mm -hmm. outfits that Katara and Toph put on, I want to make a note because Angela Mueller is the one who designed these fancy costumes for the upper ring. And she based it off of the Tang Dynasty. Mm. These were also some of Mike and Brian's favorite designs in this series. And another thing about this whole rock, paper, scissors deal. So obviously they're playing an elemental version where it's like earth, fire, and they have yeah. little hand, yeah. hand wind, signs wind, for water, them. Wind, water, heart. Yeah. <laughs> wind, yes. <laughs> Captain planet. <laughs> yes. Well, I wanted to point out, because um, this is a, a fun little aside that I learned about when I was in Japan. So rock, paper, scissors is actually a really big thing in Japan for kids mm. to play. They actually have added on to it to make it even more fun. So I wanted to share it real quick because I had a lot of fun learning it when I was in Japan. It's your typical game of rock, paper, scissors and all the paper beats rock and rock beats scissors and all of that like normal. But what they've done is add on to the end where the game can be extended with this phrase, achi moitehoi, which means, hey, look that way. And so player one or the winner, whoever won that match, points their index finger at player two's face. And in unison, both players say that phrase, and player one will point their finger in a direction and the person who lost, player two, will turn their head in a direction, either up or down or left or right. And if player two looks in a different direction than the player one's finger, then they win and they can start the game again. So it's like hmm. this, it's this whole process. And what's really fun is when you play it fast, it gets really intense because you oh, sure, start yeah. off playing rock, paper, scissors. And then you, if you tie going back to the original game, if you tie, you do it again and again until there's a winner. Oh, like geez. if you both do paper or both do rock or both do scissors, you keep playing until someone wins and then you do the finger pointing game. So it's really fun. Interesting. I also just kind of realized that Pokemon is literally rock, paper, scissor. And I didn't just realize that. I kind of knew that. But the fact that 
rock, paper, scissors is such a big like thing in Japan makes yeah. that game's success that much more impactful and makes more sense to me. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. Anyway, back across the city at Pao's family tea house, it's another night of work for Uncle and Zuko. Jet is still trailing them and is positioned outside when Smellerby and Longshot approach. He's glad to see them and says he could use some help with surveillance. But Smellerby tells him she and Longshot have been talking and they think he's becoming obsessed with his suspicion and it's not healthy. Jet's not letting this go is getting in the way of their fresh start. Jet reminds them why they need to start over in the first place, the Fire Nation. If they don't want to help him, he'll get the evidence on his own. Inside, the tea house is packed and Iroh and Zuko are hard at work. The man Iroh is serving gives him a compliment, saying this is the best tea in the city. The secret ingredient is love, Iroh says with a small flourish. Classic. <laughs> Pow is a happy employer and tells Iroh he's due for a raise. Just then, Jet bursts through the door. He accuses Zuko and Iroh of being firebenders in front of the entire tea house and demands they defend themselves with firebending. You want a show? I'll give you a show, Zuko says, and takes a nearby official's swords. He and Jet begin fighting. Mm -hmm. So this, this showdown between Jet and Zuko was actually touched on in the art book. And I learned that this fight scene between Jet and Zuko was choreographed by Sifu Kisu and Brian Kanetsko. And the video, so they shot video and that video reference was then used by the storyboard artists and the animators to bring this scene to life. It really does show because I want to say Avatar's fight scenes are some of the most realistic I've ever seen, especially in an animated show. Yeah. And so it makes sense because that process was used for every bending and martial arts movement in the show. They would have a professional, Sifu Kisu, and someone else shoot what it would look like. And then that would be transformed into animation. Yeah, they uh, they talked about that very briefly in the director's commentary as well. And um, their guest that they had on, I don't remember what her name was, but she was one of the uh, environment artists or she was the head of the environment team. She asked, she jokingly asked like, oh, which one of you got hurt during that one? And Brian was like, it was probably me. Like whenever we did that, <laughs> I always ended up getting hurt. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, they also did mention that uh, this scene was very inspired by like uh, martial arts movies where like they use props in like ways that are kind of different than what you would think. So, yeah. you know, or very, or very reactionary. So when uh, Zuko jumps up on the table, it's a platform. And then all of a sudden Jet cuts it in half. Now it's like something it's a not a platform anymore, but a hurdle that he has to get over. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of that. I do wish that this fight scene was longer. I know, my me too. Only complaint. I wanted to see this so bad. And what we got was nice. But it reminded me of uh, it reminded me of Heroes when like I don't know if anyone even watched or remembered Heroes. I did. But do you remember when they go into that future episode and it was Peter going up against uh, Zachary Quinto going up against Siler? Oh yeah. And we never saw that fight. We just saw them power up and then it cut away because it was just probably just too expensive to make. I was so <laughs> mad. I, I remember so that. But like this had gave me some of the same vibes where I was like, I've been waiting for this and we get more than that granted, but I wanted like, yeah. I think I honestly just wanted an entire episode of them just fighting. I think it yeah, would have been, I know that, that, that would only have made me happy. It would have been beautiful too. Yeah. Yeah. Katara and Toph arrive at the party and aren't let in because they don't have an invitation. Even though Toph shows the posted guard, her Beifang family passport. She and Katara move off to the side and spot a distinguished-looking man arriving nearby. 
Katara approaches him and spins a story about how her blind cousin lost their invitations. The man graciously agrees to escort them inside. Once there, they see the party is in full swing. At the banquet table, the Bear of Honor is enjoying the feast and two honored guests bicker from their seats next to him. I love how that's like, you don't know what I had to do to get these seats so close to the bear. (laughs) And the bear's just ruining their meal. Yeah, eating everything (laughs) in front of them. So good. I love the bear's name too. Yeah, me too, Bosco. Bosco. I wonder if that's a reference. I wonder if it's a reference to Dante though. I didn't put two. Oh my God. I haven't found anything that said that he was named after Dante Bosco, but like, I mean, it's probably spelled a little different, but like, yeah, it's so similar. With how many characters and side characters being named after the production team, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's fair. The man who escorts them inside introduces himself as Long Feng, the cultural minister to the king. Katara makes up names for her and Toph, Hua Mei, and Dung, <laughs> and, qu- <laughs> and quickly excuses themselves. But Long Feng smoothly insists that it would be dishonorable for him to abandon them before they found their family. Now the moment I've been waiting for to talk about in casting all episode. Ooh, okay. Long Feng is voiced by none other than the Clancy Brown, who is one of my favorite actors and voice actors. Or I should say one of my favorite character actors and voice actors. Okay. He played Lex Luthor in Superman the Animated Series. That's the first time I ever heard him. Oh, wow. He is the reason why I hold Lex Luthor in this one light versus any other portrayal. If it's anything different than what he did, I don't like it, period. It was that oh, wow. impactful. Yeah. He's also Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. No. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he was, if anyone has seen Thor Ragnarok, he played Surtur in that. Who is that again? In the beginning, the cold open, so to speak. Uh, he was the fire demon thing that oh, Thor oh, fought and ended up yeah. bringing about the Ragnarok or the destruction. Yeah, yeah. Right. He also, if you've played Detroit Become Human, he played Hank Anderson, who was Connor's like buddy during out. He was his very cool. Connor's uh, storyline was intertwined with that of Clancy Brown. He also, if you've seen Lost, he was in Lost as well. What a list. Yes, he's he is like royalty like voice acting and character acting royalty as far as i'm concerned when i heard his voice i was like immediately like a blushing just from like excitement <laughs> and b i knew this guy was no good Even oh though the really? first time because at this point in his career he almost exclusively with the exception of mr krabs played villains interesting he, he would have been like a big like lex luthor this was probably around this time because he continued that portrayal all the way through to Justice League Unlimited, which was like a freaking 10 year run or something ridiculous like that. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was a very long time. But he is very commonly associated with villains. And he does have this like gravitas to his voice as he well. He does. Yeah. Like self-importance. I love it. So good. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of voice acting, I learned that Bosco was one of the few animals in the show not voiced by D. Bradley Baker. Interesting. Yeah, right? Another little detail about the party, the background music is actually the famous Chinese song, Mo Li Hua, meaning the jasmine flower. I also probably butchered that. I apologize. It is heard faintly in the background at the Beifang estate in The Blind Bandit as well, and serves as sort of a theme for the Beifang family. So that was really cool. Mm. Outside, Aang and Sokka wait for Katara and Toph to let them in. 
Meanwhile, Sokka's been cooking up a plan involving using Momo as a ghostly distraction. Aang spots a carriage with what appears to be servants or caterers and suggests they sneak in looking like busboys. Since, you know, Toph said they could probably pass as busboys. <laughs> yeah, go after Toph's word. Back at Pao's tea house, Jet and Zuko continue the fight out into the street. Jet taunts Zuko into using firebending, but Zuko ignores him and continues to use his dual swords. Finally, a pair of Daili agents arrive and ask what is going on. Jet tells them Zuko and Iroh are firebenders and to arrest them, but Iroh tells the agents Jet is confused. Pal backs Iroh up by explaining Jet wrecked his tea shop and assaulted Zuko and Iroh, his employees. And then two local law enforcement customers verify this. Jet is outnumbered. The Daili agents arrest and take him away. In the crowd, Smellerby and Longshot watch, sadly. So I couldn't help but think through this whole thing. This is where Jet's skill with swords comes in so handy. I'm glad that he has more to resort to than just firebending, like Azula, for instance. Yeah. I, I don't think Azula is as talented with a weapon like Zuko is. Yeah, I agree. I think Azula has only really practiced her firebending, and that's about it. And I don't even think she's even gone as far as like, to know the i mean i say this very boldly and she probably does but like to know the principles of firebending just the mechanics of firebending right yes i think we we touched upon that we did a little i don't remember what episode that was but that was the episode where uh, zuko was learning lightning redirection i believe is where we kind of figured that out yeah exactly i think that was bitter work bitter work that sounds about right yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah so like the fact that zuko has learned the principles of firebending means that he could probably translate those skills into, you know, sword fighting, into hand-to-hand combat, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas Zula is just like throwing blue fire yeah. and lightning around. Yeah. yeah. But of course, like, they would also obviously approach the situation differently. Zuko Fair. is maintaining his cover by fighting with broadswords. Right. Azula in the same situation would be like, all right, to hell with it. Let's just... Yeah. <laughs> out myself as the crown princess of the fire nation i don't even think she would have everyone to, yeah she would not she be, well, undercover, she would be undercover first period. of all yes yes yeah yeah she would walk in and be like okay well actually we will see later what she does okay all right fine i will i will stop it right there okay <laughs> i do want to mention though that it is so cute how those uh law enforcement i guess they're like police officers they have that their costume reminds me of like something that would be maintaining order or there could be like magistrates or something. something but anyway, yeah. they compliment him saying he was the best team maker in the city. And Iroh actually blushes and it's is so like, cute. oh, oh, please don't. You don't have to say that. But he loves it. It says literally his hobby turning into a career. Exactly. Which is so he cool. lives for tea. Yeah. Back at the party, the royal entrance of the Earth King captures Aang's and Sokka's attention. But before Aang can get over to him, he's intercepted and led away by Long Fang. In the crowd, Sokka, Toph, Katara, and Momo are also quietly abducted by Dai Li agents. So I want to note here that that specialized earthbending skill of using the tiled rocks mm-hmm. that the Dai Li uses is a really cool concept because it basically allows an earthbender to fire these individual tiles like bullets mm-hmm. or shoot the entire glove out and then control it from a distance so they can like grab people like they do with Toph and Katara. And then we see them used as shackles too, because they can grab around someone's wrists and hold them in place. Super versatile and cool. 
Yeah, the um the commentary from the Blu-ray DVD, uh, Mike and Brian were talking about how thus far Earthbending has been very large and very flashy and like mm-hmm. you know not very subtle. And the introduction of these gloves added like a stealth element and a very like sneaky element to Earthbending, which is really absolutely, cool. which yeah. is what you would expect from like elite agents, right? Yes, yeah, and also I forgot to bring this up. Not a voice acting thing, but when Momo was hiding underneath Ang's hat. It looked mm-hmm. like uh, Ang had, they're not called ponytails. I don't remember what they're called, but it's oh. a very traditional hairstyle for Earth Kingdom men at that point, which is what he was trying to go for. Oh, I get it. Yes. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Which very I cool. didn't catch on the first go around, but when I watched it after the director's commentary, I was like, oh yeah, that definitely looks like everyone else's hairstyle. <laughs> nice. Yeah. We also briefly in this scene get to see some of the Earth King's royal guards. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to point out that their armor was specifically designed the way it was because it looks a lot more ceremonial than the other Earthbenders in Ba Sing Se. And the team imagined that the Earth King's royal guards probably didn't see much action and thus they would be able to afford to wear more regal attire. But the one thing that is similar to other Earthbenders is they are also barefoot. I didn't even look at their feet. That's so interesting. When Aang is standing on the table in front of Long Fang, there's a shot where you can see top to bottom the royal guard there. I need to start looking at feet more. I never thought I'd ever say that. <laughs> or backgrounds. You can actually catch a lot if you yeah, look, that's pay true. attention to the background. That's true. Team Avatar is brought to Long Fang's office where it's revealed that the Earth King is just a figurehead and Long Fang holds the real power in Ba Sing Se. When Sokka presses Long Fang about the information they have about the solar eclipse, Long Fang insists that the war must never be mentioned within Ba Sing Se's walls. Constant news of an escalating war would throw the city's citizens into a state of panic. As Long Fang speaks, we watch as Jet is brought into a cell and strapped into a chair before a circular metal track. A Dai Li agent stands inside the track and begins speaking as a lantern spins around him. You're safe now. There is no war in Ba Sing Se. There is no war within the walls. Here we are safe. Here we are free. So creepy. So creepy. Back in the room, Long Feng explains, In silencing talk of conflict, Ba Sing Se remains a peaceful, orderly utopia, the last one on Earth. Team Avatar protests and say the people of the city should know, and they're going to tell them. Long Feng calmly threatens them, saying they have been treated as guests before today, but will now be watched by Daili agents. If they mention the war to anyone within the city, they will be expelled. He calls for Judy to escort them home, and their guide enters the room. But it's not the Judy they know. A woman they've never met before stands before them wearing the same outfit as their Judy. I am Judy. I will be your host as long as you are in our wonderful city. And the episode ends there. What a like a ridiculous, crazy, dark way to end this episode. Insane. I love it. It's so good. Oh, man. Like as soon as that happened, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I am in. Let's do this. Do you think they killed the other Judy or is she just getting reprocessed? I think she's getting reprocessed. Yeah. She's getting re-brainwashed because I think to some extent they control people's memories Mm -hmm. and so that's part of the brainwashing process not only getting them to not talk about or be aware of the war but also like just control them yeah because like something that's interesting is the first judy 
the brainwashing does appear to be like running out of time, so to speak. Or Yeah, it doesn't seem as complete. She seems right. to be pretty self-aware compared yeah. to other brainwashed people. Yeah. yeah. So she's just kind of like working off of fear, essentially, and she mm-hmm. knows what she needs to do. And that's probably why that smile drops a couple of times throughout the episode is it's like a signifier of, hey, like she's yeah, she's weird and she's like acting kind of off. But like she does have some sort of sense in there versus you know other brainwashed people who are just like probably walking around without that and she even says to um wong fang she's like i couldn't help it like i couldn't these uh, circumstances were like out of my control Like this is not my fault she's Mm -hmm. like pleading with him and that's when he's probably like all right you're pleading it's wearing off refresher yep oh man we're gonna see more about that in a couple episodes or two yes can't wait i do have a couple notes actually about this this section so Lung Feng introduces himself as the Grand Secretariat, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a position in government that answers to the Earth Monarch. And the Secretariat serves as the Earth King's foremost advisor on internal matters within the capital city and also maintains law and order in the city through the Dai Li. Mm. Much like the Earth Monarch is the head of state, the Grand Secretariat is supposed to be the head of the government, similar to the prime minister or president in some countries. Now, here's the cool thing. In the imperial government of the Ming Dynasty, which is about 1368 to 1644, there was an administrative position known as the Grand Secretariat. And similar to the depiction in Avatar, the Grand Secretariat was intended to be a relatively low post but in practice had a great deal of control over the emperor because he screened all of the documents sent to the emperor from all other governmental agencies. So the Grand Secretariat also held power over the court and ministers, making him kind of the de facto ruler at times. So I want to say they based that off of history, similar to how they've done so many other things in this show. I just, I am never over the fact at how like well-researched the team is. Yeah. Really? I like how uh, Long Feng presents himself. He goes, oh, no, I serve at his majesty's will. Like, I am just a mere servant in just his a court. Humble servant. I am just a low, low man on the totem pole. You can't blame me for any of this. And, and he can't be sullying his hands and his time with your little war and your little, like, bargains. Like, you know, go yeah. away. Like, he's so, like casual but like at the same time you know based on his voice that like he's in control of any situation and he is super well aware oh Oh, yeah so good so good i need to also give another shout out to javon blue who was the (laughs) javon blue also known as the machine who cranked out all of those (laughs) high quality illustrations for the team i want to point out because he was also joined by another newcomer in this season brian evans and i read from the moment brian joined the crew brian evans he became a keystone of the art department due to his beautiful paintings Many of the highly detailed backgrounds in the first few episodes of the show were designed by Javon and painted by Brian Evans. So going back to the waterfall camp, the refugee processing center in in, uh, Full Moon Bay, those were all done by these two people. And Long Fane's dramatically lit library study is one of Mike and Brian's favorites of this team. I can see it. It was very atmospheric. Oh, yes. So well done. A lot of appreciation to the art department. For sure. Uh, I was so sure that there was going to be a trapdoor 
in that evil bad guy lair. <laughs> I was so sure. That's in two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> there is a trap door somewhere in Boston, okay. say. We will okay. find out where later. Yep. <laughs> Finally, Brian's second favorite season two villain behind Azula is actually Long Fang. The writing team's complex portrayal, coupled with the brilliant voice acting from Clancy Brown, made the character much more interesting than your typical bad guy. Looking back, Brian commented that Long Fang ended up being much deeper and more nefarious than the show's main villain, the Fire Lord. Yeah, he's a better bad guy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we can credit the writing team for that. Yeah, it's, it's, oh man. So good. Although, you know, when you think about it, Long Fang is like the antagonist and the Fire Lord's like your final boss. Yeah, and I guess usually like the mini bosses leading up to the boss are generally more interesting than the main boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like the power versus the cunning. Yeah. But that is our episode, folks. Mm -hmm. The city of walls and secrets. Things are starting to get serious. Yes. All right. Let's talk MVPs. Who was your MVP, Greg? This is a no brainer. It's Long Fang for me. Oh, like, 100%. So good. Me too. So, like, He's the new Zhao, but what's interesting is he's Earth Kingdom, and yeah. he's not an idiot. Well, Zhao wasn't really that big of an idiot, but he was an idiot at times. Like, his pride kind of took over. He was a little blustery. Yeah. yeah. But, like, this guy is in control. He has an entire city under his thumb, and I would wager not many people know of his existence. Yeah, agreed. He is probably the cloak and daggers in yep. the background, in the shadows. Yes, yep. figurehead. Or, or if they know him, they don't realize the power that he has. Exactly. So, he just seems to be a, a humble servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he plays that up so well. And like Clancy Brown is just always going to hold that special place in my heart for voice acting because of like... I said it earlier, how much he influenced my opinion on a fictional character that has been, mm -hmm. been portrayed before him and will be portrayed after him. But for me, that's like the stereotype. Well, that, that's like Kevin Conroy is Batman. Clancy Brown is Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor. Yep. yep. 100%. What about you? Uh, no. Same. Long Fang. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's such a good bad guy. And he's so cold and calculated. Yeah. Like, you're right. He is kind of like the new Zhao, except... Earth Kingdom and a little more self-contained. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's definitely a little more proper as well. Yeah. Um, shout out for me, though, goes to Jet for for believing in himself and for also like not wavering from his stance. Like, although he's mm -hmm. like a little too dog chasing a car kind of vibes going on. He just yeah. like continues on because he knows he's right. So like I can give him like a point five right there. Yeah. Also, special shout out to Toph for being the team's cultural guide in the big city. <laughs> and flicking boogers in the ceiling, which <laughs> rewatch that scene. It stays on the ceiling for like A 30 long seconds. Time. <laughs> yeah. <It's> so funny. <laughs> what about your moral of the episode? Moral of the episode. Go with your gut. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah, there's something wrong in the city and everyone feels it but no one's really calling it out until it's too late. Mm -hmm. That is a moral if I've ever heard one. Yeah. What about you? Remember your manners. Nice. Nice. Well said. <laughs> oh, man. This is a fun episode. Thank you all for listening. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this. Mm -hmm. If you have anything to add or if you want to share your own MVP or a moral of the episode, please do share. You can write us at 
avatarthepodcast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at podcast avatar, or even leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you want to help out the show. Mm-hmm. I do want to give a quick shout out. So we're recording these quite a bit in advance. Uh, I do want to give a quick, quick shout out to Rob C, who has been literally binging the show and has been yes. like writing us these <laughs> super long, like really cool, really funny recaps of his own. So we've been reading those. We appreciated that as of recording right now, which is going to date how far in advance we're recording all these. But he just caught up. So congratulations, pal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for writing into us. It's been really fun reading your emails. Yes. Also, another friendly reminder that we have a Patreon now. So if you want to support the podcast, you've left your review, you still want to help us do this thing, you can head over to patreon.com slash avatar the podcast and pledge to one of the tiers. You can join a nation, Mm -hmm. represent your favorite nation. We're going to have some fun community things related to that. And also we have our Toph and Oppa pins you can find on either joysans.com, J-O-I-S-A-N-S.com, or on Etsy if you search for Joysans Studio. Yes. And if you're caught up on all the episodes and want to talk to us a little bit more, as always, you can tweet at us at Podcast Avatar. Email us, as always, at avatarthepodcast at gmail.com and slash or. You can follow me over at twitch.tv slash boostergreg and tweet at me at boostergreg. Type in boostergreg and you get something. It's probably me. So you can come say hi. That's about how I work too. Yeah. Yeah. Search Acorn Bandit. You'll find me. Yeah. (laughs) Coming up next time. Adventures in the big city. And two big reasons why you'll need tissues. All this and more next time on Avatar Avatar, the the podcast. Podcast. Avatar, the podcast, is a proud part of the Geek Generation Network. Remember to check out all of our other podcasts at thegeekgeneration.com.